One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Claire Pollard, on her debut novel, Delphi. Claire Pollard is based in London and is an award-winning poet and playwright. She is the author of five poetry collections and was formerly the editor of the Modern Poetry and Translation magazine. And today we're going to talk about Claire's debut novel, Delphi. Claire, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, So tell us, first of all, then, how you would describe the novel. Well, (laughs) there's lots of ways in because it's quite a complicated beast, really. But I suppose the best thing is to sort of describe how it happened for me, which is I was researching oracles and, and modes of prophecy thinking it might be a non-fiction book perhaps I've always been fascinated by modes of prophecy my father used to say he was psychic when I was a kid which I sort of believe and don't believe but he you know he made some pretty accurate prophecies he said I was going to meet the man I was going to marry he got that within a week's prediction right so so I've always been interested in the supernatural and ideas of prophecy and and I've always been interested in Greek and Roman myth I translated Ovid's Heroides so I was doing a lot of the research around the Delphic Oracle, who sort of called to me as a figure, and also Cassandra. I've always been absolutely mesmerised by Cassandra, this idea of someone who can see the future, but nobody believes her. So I was researching that, and then the pandemic hit, and I couldn't write anything. I was homeschooling my children. But somewhere in that period, I wanted to write about the pandemic. That's just my nature. I write about now. I'm interested in now. And I suddenly had this idea it should be a Greek tragedy set during lockdown. And once I had that, I realised the book had to be fiction, not non-fiction. So that's the sort of weird way it happened. So it's a story of a classics professor during lockdown and the Greek tragedy that ensues. So tell us something more about our narrator then. So she's unnamed, as you said, she's a classics professor, and this is absolutely fiction. You say at the beginning of the book, this is not based on real life, your own family or anything, Uh, although it is, you know, very specifically set over the last couple of years and we'll talk about that a little bit later on but tell us something more about who she is. So I found a really useful way of thinking about it everyone talks about autofiction at the moment and there's this idea that everyone assumes the speaker in a book the I is the writer which is something that's been happening actually in poetry for years and years so it's very interesting to me as a poet that this is sort of infected fiction now. She is in a way a version of me this speaker but I kind of see her as my avatar as it as it was you know my son was playing a lot of computer games during lockdown and when you're playing a computer game you sort of get a chance it's sort of a version of yourself but you get a chance to live lots of different lives don't you lots of parallel lives 
And this is a sort of version of myself, but if things had gone differently, if I'd had the option of learning classics at school, for example, you know, my life might have gone a very different way. I would have studied something different at university, met a different life partner, had a different child and so on. So she's a sort of alternative version of me, I would say. And her her life's not gone in a great direction. My own, I wouldn't pitch my own life as a tragedy, <laughs> but yeah. She's starkier than me, I would say. That's one difference. She's not got many friends. She's quite lonely and she's quite snarky. But that was quite fun to to write the snark, especially given that I was writing this during lockdown and the pandemic. It was quite fun to just sort of have quite an angry voice who could let rip. So how has the pandemic affected her life in particular? So she's an academic, so she's expected to still work, but everything's had to go online. All the students are obviously having meltdowns and it's very stressful. And then there's that, there was that period where everyone had to go into the universities, didn't they? Even though it was clear that everybody was going to get locked down in their student accommodation, that kind of mad policy. So she's got all that going on. And at the same time, she's having to homeschool her son. And as in many, in many families, I know somehow the burden of that falls on the woman in the household. And her marriage is not in a great shape. So she's, she's very sort of lonely and isolated during this period, I would say. So I want to talk about both her, her husband and her son, both of whom have names with sort of classical illusions. Um, Jason, her husband. Um, I want you to tell us something about who he is, but also just to say about calling him Jason. And we're obviously not <laughs> going to talk about what happens in the novel. Mm. We're not going to give anything away. But calling him Jason may give people ideas about where they think the book is going to go. I'm not saying it necessarily does, but let's talk about why you've called him Jason. Well, I just, I, it's not my husband. I should say very, very clearly, my husband likes me to say that. And my husband doesn't wear a dressing gown. You might want to know, Neil. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Jason is sort of a compound of sort of lots of husbands I know, or lots of stories I've heard at the school gate about husbands. And he's the sort of man I hope a lot of people recognise him that he was, you know, he was a sort of golden boy when he was younger. He was very handsome. He always knew where the party was. He was a DJ, drank a lot, took a lot of drugs, you know, had a lot of fun, which I know a lot of people like that. And it's sort of that question of what happens when you get to middle age, you know, can you stop? (laughs) And where does that sort of energy and that sense of yourself go? So I sort of called him Jason because he's that idea of, um, I wanted him to be a sort of handsome Greek hero type, but who their relationship is sort of souring a little, I suppose. <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> it does indeed, yeah. And, um, and then Xander, who is, who is the son, tell us something about him as well. He, he has quite a lot of allergies. And because of that, his mother is perhaps overprotective of him in some ways and worries about him a lot. My own child doesn't have allergies, but I've got lots of friends with children with allergies. And I think perhaps because she overprotects him, he's sort of retreated into himself and he's started to become a bit distant from his mum and not really talk to her or hug her anymore. And he's always sort of saying, you know, get off me, mum, or don't don't fuss. He likes computer games and he plays. He's always on, always on screens, which, again, I think was very typical. That was a, a fear of lots of parents in lockdown that they were almost losing their children to the screens. And, and for years, we've been told not to give our children much screen time. And then suddenly the school's teaching them all day on screens and then sending them video links for more screens. And it just felt like their whole 
their whole lives were moving on screens, wasn't it? And there's a, something quite frightening about that, I think, which I explore in the book. So let's talk about writing about the pandemic. So obviously you talked about how, how this could have gone off in a, in a different direction as a nonfiction book before the pandemic started. So how do you approach writing about the pandemic? How do you write about something which, frankly, I would like to forget about? Yeah, yeah, I totally understand that. And it's not going to be for every reader. Some people are not ready to read about it. Some people perhaps will never will never want to read about the pandemic. But I think, you know, there, there are two camps of readers. There are those who feel like that, and that's absolutely fine. They can go and read something else entirely. But there are, I, I like to believe there's other people like me who process experience through literature and need literature in order to process experience and I want to read about it. And, you know, I've just lived through a major, major historical event that sort of changed all our lives and was crazy. I mean, when you think what happened, you know, you were, it was illegal to see your own mother and things. It's, it's almost impossible to imagine. I think it's very dangerous if we just sort of sweep it away or normalise what happened. And I really wanted to sort of capture it while it was fresh. And for me, I, I process things through literature. So, I mean, a really clear example of that is when my dad died I got a phone call in the middle of the night that he's he died and me and my husband were driving back at like three in the morning driving to Bolton to be with my family and I wrote I wrote a poem I hadn't even cried yet and I wrote a poem about it when we were at a service stop because for me that's just how I work it's how I it's how I survive it's how I process stuff to take whatever you're feeling your emotions and all the bad stuff and to control it that's what writing does it gives you some control over the material you can make something beautiful out of something horrible so it's just my instinct so that's it never even occurred to me not to write about the pandemic do you know what I mean I couldn't live through something like that and not write about it and it does feel like incredibly fresh like verite there is you know mention of real people and real events you know people like you know joe wicks and sarah Everard, yeah. and even at one point the poet claire pollard gets mentioned yeah yeah um so like reading it right now it is like it takes you right back to that moment how do you think that will be to how do you think the novel will, will fare reading it in like say five years or ten years time i think it would be considered a stone cold classic no <laughs> Yeah, obviously I'm playing, I've got an eye on the long game, you know. There's going to be a few novels remembered that deal with the pandemic. And I think I have really captured it. You're asking me to show off. <laughs> I mean, some people worry, don't they, about putting things like names like Joe Wicks and stuff. It's always a big debate in poetry whether you should include contemporary references or brand names and stuff. This idea that you should be straining for something more universal. But I, I love the poet Frank O'Hara, who's in a New York poet who writes about just strolling around New York in the 1950s and his poems are full of brand names and the names of his mates and things like that and I don't think um they're just such 50s names it's brilliant I don't think it it never bothers me that I don't understand some of the references it seems to me like a little time capsule when I read one of his poems so hopefully my book does the same thing you know I don't think someone's going to think oh I can't enjoy this because I don't know who Joe Wicks is it's just part of the texture of reality, as you say, which I was I was trying very hard to make the book feel very real and to capture the, the texture of what it was like to live through those days, to bottle it. And of course, obviously, you've not just written a, a contemporary novel about the pandemic, but it is full of allusions to the classics. And, you know, the narrator is a 
a classic scholar. So let's talk about the idea of like using the classics, looking back to the classics to to comment on contemporary events. Yeah, as a poet, a poem almost always does sort of two things at, at the same time. I, I think in metaphors and uh, poets are connection makers in many ways. So, you know, I would never write a poem that's just about the Pendle witch trial. I think, well, I'm drawn to this material, but why? And then I sort of look at it and write round it until I realise, oh, because it speaks to this in contemporary culture. So I wrote a poem about Hamlin that's also about sort of surveillance. That's how sort of a lot of poetry works. And I love, I, you know, I fell in love with Sylvia Plath. I, I love these image makers who make connections between two things. Or John Dunn, who says a flea sucking on you is the same as having intercourse. So I, I love these connection makers. And it would never occur to me to write a book that is just an account of the pandemic. That seems to me very sort of flat and one-dimensional somehow and a bit boring. So it's when you put it together with something else and you start making those connections. That for me is when literature, art happens. And I already had this material. As I say, I was already, as it happened, researching oracles and prophecy, wondering what to do with that material. And I started seeing all these connections, you know, because what was Chris Whitty doing if he wasn't making prophecies, you know, with all these sort of charts on the screen. And I wrote the last page of the last chapter of the book as it was actually happening. And on the year anniversary of the beginning of the pandemic, Boris Johnson said, my one regret is that I didn't know then what I know now. I think it's really interesting. So there were all these things about premonition and everyone making prophecies of what was going to happen and and also about all this stuff about algorithms, like the algorithms predicting the uh, exam results and giving all the working class children really bad grades because they predicted they would have fucked up the exams and so on so um i mean algorithms are the whole model of sort of google and facebook and all that where they make the money is premonition is prediction it's predicting how you'll behave so i sort of started seeing sort of prediction and premonition everywhere really and we think it's a you know something for the ancients or something we've grown out of as a civilization and it's actually quite the opposite we're dependent on predictions and super forecasters and all these things more than ever, I think. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Claire Pollard and we're talking about her debut novel, Delphi. And Claire, in the second half, I want to look more closely at some of the ideas of prophecy. Each of the each of the chapters of the book is named after a a form of prophecy, a form of telling the future. First of all, before we do that, let's talk about the title Delphi and what the significance of Delphi is. Yeah, so um, I've never actually been to Delphi. I did at one point get some money off the Society of Authors to visit Delphi as part of my research for the book, but then it all got cancelled because of the pandemic. So I've never been there. There's a poem by um, Cavafy, the Greek poet, about Ithaca, where it says it's all about the, the journey. It's not about getting to Ithaca. He's talking about the Odyssey, Holmes Odyssey. It's not about getting to Ithaca. It's, um, it's about what you do on the journey. And Delphi has become my sort of Ithaca now. You know, the journey's given me this, my debut novel and everything, but I've never, I've still never, I've still never been there. But it was considered the centre of the ancient world. So there's a story about Zeus sending two eagles and where their paths cross, and that's going to be the centre of the earth, and it's apparently at Delphi. It's called, it's called the navel of the earth, the omphalos. And there's a thing called Delphi syndrome, which is when you assume, you feel like a centre of political power or something is the centre of the earth. So there's that idea in Delphi that, you know, we were all just locked in our own little houses, our own little space. And it felt like we were very disconnected from other people. I think we all felt like we were at the centre of our own world in some way during that pandemic. But it's also, of course, the place where the the famous oracle of Delphi is. And she's a figure who really interested me. She's a sort of, she was often a middle-aged woman from quite an ordinary background and she had to abandon her husband and children and give herself over to this new role of being the prophet. And she would go down into this sort of dark space and sit on a three-legged stool and Apollo would start to, after various rituals, Apollo would speak through her and then there would be translators who would scroll down what she said and sort of put it into hex, tidy it up, I got the impression, put it into hexameters and then declare it to everyone. So she's a really interesting figure. She interested me as being this middle-aged woman who sort of shucked off her family. Um, she interests me in, in talking about power, thinking about where power lies. Does she have incredible power or none at all? You know, because it's not her words, it's Apollo speaking through her. And 
then her words are translated. Maybe they're the person with power, you know. Is she one of the most important people in the ancient world, you know, this middle-aged woman? Or is she just completely used and doesn't have any power at all? She's just gibbering. It's hard to know. (laughs) But that's very interesting. And they, they say now, they believe now there was sort of gas escaping in this space that might have made her sort of hallucinate. So let's talk about the process of researching the various different forms of prophecy that appear in the book. And, well, this may turn out to be a really stupid question, but, like, are they all real? Well, Have you made some no, up? It's, not, it's not that stupid a question, because I, I'm mainly just based it on a list I found on Wikipedia, so I don't know why they all real. I just stumbled on this list of names of types of divination on Wikipedia. You know, like I say, I'm not an academic. And also I I wrote this book very fast in a kind of fever. And um, when, you know, libraries were still shut and so on. So don't necessarily trust it. Don't be citing this anyone in your academic studies, you know. I did did draw on Wikipedia quite a lot, which it turns out is is great on the ancient world. Well, I hope it's great. (laughs) Just make it all up. But I found this list and I thought, wow, that's almost just like a found poem of this list of all these amazing names. And I was just going to put it as a chapter, you know, this list of names. And then when I realised, when I suddenly had the idea of using them as chapter names, that was when the book started to click together for me. I'm always interested in that relationship between form and content, you know. And when I could sort of start to... I think what the chapter names do, because they're all different sorts of prophecies, so just like videomancy, prophecy by electronic visual medium, or hematomancy, prophecy by blood, and so on. What that gives the novel, I think, is like poets. When I write poetry, and I've spent most of my adult life being a poet, my first book of poetry came out when I was 18, The Heavy Petting Zoo. But when people read poetry, we expect a certain, a different sort of attention, you know. I always say to my students, you can you can put a sausage in a novel and no one blinks, but if you put a sausage in a poem, people might read something into that sausage. Be careful, you know. You can't put a road in a poem without it being like the journey of life. You can't put an apple in there without just thinking about knowledge and sin and so on. People just read it with a different attention. They're looking for metaphor and resonance. And I think what having those chapter titles does for me in Delphi is it, it, it sort of makes people read the novel more like they would read a poem in a way. So... And that's what prophecy does, actually. It makes everything resonant. Once you believe in, you know, if once you believe in that sort of thing, that the world is full of signs, you start reading the world like a poem. You see three birds in your garden and it's meaningful. A cat crosses your path and it's meaningful, you know. And in the novel, I think, you're suddenly, those chapter titles mean you read differently. You're reading with a different sort of attention, thinking, oh, what's that sign? What's that hinting at? What's that? You know, I make everything metaphorical in a way. Indeed. Well, I'm glad you mentioned videomancy. And I'm also really, um, really pleased then that somewhere out there in the world, there is somebody that literally <laughs> believes yeah. in shufflemancy <laughs> prophecy by the use of an electronic media player, which is the one I presume you'd made up. Um, can I get you to, to read us a bit to finish us off? Yeah, of course. So um, I'm going to read a bit where... Um, she started, so this classics professor who's researching this um, book about prophecy has started to get a bit obsessed with it. She starts having tarot readings, doing the I Ching on her phone every day. And she, she's bought these um, 
she's bought these lucid dreaming pills online, which I have actually never taken myself. They look too expensive for me to <laughs> for me to justify them as research, but they, they I've seen them, they do exist. So she started taking these dreaming pills and sort of noting down her dreams as another form of prophecy. And here she's she's going to take some pills. That's her it's her sort of way of dealing with lockdown. All the family are at this stage not dealing with lockdown in their in their own special ways. Sickliomancy, prophecy by swirling water in a cup. In bed by nine with a cup of weak herbal tea, bored. Whilst Jason watches TV downstairs and probably gets the vodka out or has a sneaky joint or something like I'm his fucking headmistress. I decide to take a red pill and a blue pill. It takes me a while to get to sleep. My back hurts at the moment. I feel clammy, foxes. But then I must fall asleep because I dream I am in Delphi, beneath those shining rocks, a dry riverbed, olive trees that rustle, a scent of time. Led towards the fissure by men, I realise it is me. I am the oracle the ordinary middle-aged woman they have chosen as Oracle. As we enter the cave, I stoop as if bowing to something, my eyes trying to focus in the darkness, my sandals cautious on the uneven stone floor. And then there is a rising, gagging feeling, something trickling into my belly at first, then in my blood, my lungs, I blurt, breathing quicker, vision skittering, Apollo speaks through me in a surge. I feel him clack my jaw and writhe my tongue in my mouth as ancient Greek words pour, pour, pour. He says, I say, the second wave comes more monstrous than the first. He says, I say, a leader will lose but refuse to leave. He says, I say, through my lips, clouds of sulfuric acid, 55 degrees Celsius. He says, I say, People lie baked by the road, their insides cooked. The smell, water cues where a credit is a small plastic bottle of yellowish water. Mothers with babies wait with stagnant eyes. Only the wealthy will have taps in their grand hilltop houses. And as I puke out these words, I'm remembering Xander in literally inches of bubbly water, kicking, sucking flannel. If you're happy and you know it, splash your hands. Lit water pouring, pouring from stacky cup to stacky cup and raining down his neck or the apricots from Cape Town I washed for Xander under taps. Apollo does not have anything to say about my marriage. It is as meaningless to the gods as this grain of white dust, this olive stone spat into sand. So I've been talking to Claire Pollard. We've been talking about her debut novel, Delphi, which is out in the UK from Penguin Fig Tree. Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.